Good evening, everyone. Glad to see you all here. Our numbers are up this week. That's really good. It's very encouraging to see you all out there. I, uh, I'm really grateful for that. Um, numbers have been low for a while, uh, but uh, it's really good to have actual people here uh, coming together to sing. It makes the singing that much better when you have that many more voices. And so I'm really, really pleased to see everybody here tonight. And just a reminder, at the end of uh, the teaching time tonight, we'll have a time of questions and answers. And um, nobody has to stay around for that. Um, so if you need to sneak out or whatever, don't feel bad about it. But we want to provide that time uh, for us to, to continue to learn together and grow together. So just a reminder to what's at the end. Um, if, uh, in your Bibles, if you want to turn to the book of 1 John, near the end of your near the end of your Bibles. Um, that's where we'll be tonight. And just a reminder about last week um, and what we went over. We went through an introduction last week to the book of 1 John, also known as an epistle, which is a letter. So, you know, you've probably heard that term before. Not everybody knows what it means, but just simply speaking, it's, it's a letter. Um, and so, among other things, we looked at some of the similarities in writing style, in vocabulary, and subject matter between what is written in the book of 1 John and, for instance, what is written in the Gospel of John. Um, and this was to show some of the proofs uh, that the early church used to attribute this letter to the Apostle John as the writer. Uh, since there's no traditional greeting at the beginning of this letter, like a lot of books of the Bible... Um, this is what was done to, to identify this. And again, it really is a settled issue that, that John wrote the book of 1 John, and the church has, as a whole has always believed that. Okay, So it's not something that we need to doubt or, or have a problem with. Um, we also noted that though there is some debate about the exact timing, um, he wrote this letter near the end of the first century, uh, most likely sometime after 85 A.D., there are differing numbers there, um, and most likely from the city of Ephesus. There are a lot of accounts of him living in the city of Ephesus at the end of his life, um, and that this was written prior to, to his exile on the island of Patmos, where, of course, is the place where God gave him visions of Revelation, and he wrote uh, the book of Revelation. But more to the point of the subject for tonight, we also talked about some of the content of this letter being written to address the problem of false teaching of the Gnostics. Okay, these were people who taught serious error uh, about the nature of matter and of spirit that completely changed the person and work of Christ. To follow those teachings would change everything about who Christ was. And the Greek word, we talked about last week, the Greek word gnosis has a silent G at the front of it, so it's not gnosis, uh, and it means knowledge. And the Gnostics were those that had a, a supposed uh, special knowledge from God. You know, they were those that were the initiated. They had the privilege of getting this special knowledge, but it was really a mixture of pagan mysticism and uh, Greek philosophy. And they said that salvation came by this secret and superior knowledge only given to those special people. Um, they considered that all matter was evil and spirit was good. Okay, so your body, the flesh, is evil, your soul or your spirit, good. Okay, and where they took that was to say that your body may sin, but 
that doesn't affect your spirit, so don't worry about judgment. Okay? And there was also the docetic Gnosticism, which is that Christ merely seemed to have a human body. Okay? His supposed humanity was a phantom or sort of like a hologram. Okay? You've seen those in movies. You, know, you can see this image, and yet you can put your hands through it, and you're not really touching anything. Okay? That's kind of how they, how they thought of it. Um, and you see, since, since matter is evil, Christ could not have truly had a physical body because that would have made Christ evil. Okay? So they take away the humanity of Christ. He did not actually come in the flesh, according to that belief system. And there was Cerinthian Gnosticism, named after Cerinthius. Um, and the, the, this taught that the man Jesus was the son of Joseph and Mary. He was an actual man, son of Joseph and Mary. Uh, he was a righteous person but that he didn't become the Messiah until the Holy Spirit came on him and empowered his ministry for the, the three years that he did his public ministry and then left him at the crucifixion. So it was only a man who died on the cross and, and rose again. Okay? Again, taking away here um, the deity of Christ. Okay? And these beliefs were leading people to engage in at least two sinful practices that we talked about. And each of them were an extreme on either end. Okay? The first one was asceticism. Based on their belief of matter being evil, spirit being good, they engaged in asceticism, or the punishing of their body to, to punish that evilness, to free the spirit. Okay? And that punishment of the body could come in any number of ways. It was, and the scriptures talk about it being a severity to the body. The other extreme was licentiousness, living any way you want. Sexual perversion, other sin, it's just the body that's evil. Okay? It's, your spirit is good and uncontaminated by that evil, so it doesn't matter what you do. Live, live crazy. Okay? And, and to hold these false systems of belief not only led people into serious sin, but to a rejection of the truth about Jesus Christ. And John is writing to people that he knows and who know him. And it seems he has a front row seat for the deception that is, and the heresy that's affecting the church. And the Christians and those who profess to be Christians are falling into this. And therefore, he writes this letter to attack those lies and those who are pushing them. So when we read the first four verses of this letter, we'll notice right away that he's focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ as well as the message of salvation that Christ brought, and uh, which also is proclaimed by the apostles. Okay, so I want to start by reading that, and then we'll pray. So let's look at 1 John chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 4. Okay, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was manifested, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete. And let's pray this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the truth that you have given us 
in the pages of Scripture. And Father, we pray tonight that, as Matt prayed earlier, that you would open our hearts uh, to hear this, to receive what your word says. Lord, encourage us by it, by the truth of it. And Lord, convict us of any areas in our lives where perhaps we're believing falsely about Christ. And I pray that you would do so throughout our time in this book, Lord, as there are many sections of this of this letter written by John that deal with true and false. And so, Father, I pray you would open our hearts to hear it, to receive it. We thank you again for it. We thank you for our salvation in Christ. We give you praise in, in his name. Amen. Okay. So John establishes right away, in the, in the passage we just read there, he establishes right away that He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Okay? He doesn't even say, hey, you know all this false stuff being taught? Well, here's the truth. No, he jumps right into the truth. He just, he just says what the truth is. Um, and he's not saying anything new here either. What, what we read there, this is not new. It's not the first time that these people would have even heard this. These are truths that he's already pro- proclaimed, as, as did the other apostles. Uh, the people already have, have his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And mind you, uh, this is nearing the end of John's life, and he's, he is the last of the apostles. Okay? He is now, at the time of this writing, or, or soon will be, the last person living who is actually in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here on the earth. Imagine being that person, the last person who physically saw and was with the Lord Jesus Christ. And John is speaking here with authority, and he expects that the hearers of this letter will take what he says as having authority. He knows, of course, as we just talked about, he knows the lies of the Gnostics, and that the people are beginning to doubt the gospel message, the incarnation of Christ, the eternality of Christ, the deity of Christ. All these things are being attacked. And so his introduction to the letter, basically that's what we read tonight, is a portion of his introduction to the whole letter, um, is an establishment of the truth about Jesus Christ as a refutation to the lies that some have begun to teach and believe. Okay, so what he proclaims here is the truth, and it's to refute the false teaching. And verses 1 through 3 are like, like one long sentence, if you, if you look at it there. And, and all of verse 2 you can kind of look at as a as a parenthetical statement. It's like it's inserted in there in between what the point that he's making. Um, and my wife and I are going through a book right now called A Theology of Christian Counseling uh, by Jay Adams. And Jay Adams' writing style quite often is to start a sentence and then pause and then put in parentheses kind of a long sentence or two and then get back to the point that he started earlier on. It's it's kind of difficult to follow sometimes. It's good information, and it's necessary information, but it can kind of throw you off, and you have to go back and, and see, how did this start again? Let me make this whole connection here. Um, and so you can kind of lose track of the original point and have to go back. And that's kind of what you have to do here as well. John starts verse 1, then interrupts the flow of it with verse 2 to make some, some comments, and then picks back up with the original thought in verse 3. Okay? It's all true, and it's all good information, but that's kind of what goes on. So if you find yourself being a little confused by the flow of it, that's, kind of, that's why. It's, 
kind of a parenthetical statement in there. So looking again at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Okay? Notice that, that all of what he's saying and will say here in the opening verses of chapter 1 is, is directed at and is how he, it's how he puts it as concerning the word of life. Okay, that's the, the focus there, concerning the word of life. So the question is, what does he mean by talking about word of life? Well, we could say it's Jesus, okay? and, we, and we wouldn't be wrong. John 1, verses 1 through 2 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 4, in, in the Gospel of John, he says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And moving on, in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, John describes and writes how Jesus describes himself. He said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so Jesus is both the Word and he is the life. The only other place I can find where the phrase, the word of life appears like that in Scripture is in Paul's writing in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, where he says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And in that context, Paul's writing, uh, using that phrase to describe the gospel, okay, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the, is the word of life that Christians need to hold fast to. So in our text tonight, I think, I think it's both. I think we can see that really it's both. This is John's way of describing not only Jesus himself as being the word of life, but that his gospel message is the word of life. Okay, it's all connected. And the reason I say it's both is because uh, the passage as a whole, John is clearly referencing, as we go through this, the person and work of Jesus Christ and also the proclamation of his message. Okay, the phrase John uses to open his letter, that which was from the beginning. Well, what beginning? The beginning of time or the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry? Some scholars think this is a reference to, to Jesus himself being eternal, which, of course, Jesus is, um, and, and which John proclaimed in John 1.1, as we just read a minute ago. Okay, others while not denying the eternality of Christ, they think that the context of this passage is a reference to his incarnation or the beginning of his earthly ministry. And since John goes on to talk about all the things concerning that point in time, okay, as, as you move through this, you'll see he's really discussing things that are connected to that point in time of the manifestation of Christ. Okay, and so hence he talks about hearing and seeing and touching. And so I tend to agree that the, that the first words of this passage are referencing the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, his incarnation, or his manifestation. And to believe that about this passage uh, does not deny the eternality of Jesus. Okay? Uh, it, it merely means that that is not the focus at that first part there. Okay? Later in the passage, John does reference the eternality of Christ, uh, as we'll see. The, the that, you know, the word that right there at the beginning, um, 
I believe what we see there is he's talking about how everything concerning the person and work of the incarnate Jesus Christ. Okay, not only the reality of his humanity, but the, the message that he proclaimed. Whatever it is that concerns Jesus Christ and the gospel message is the that that he's talking about here. Okay, and there are four things that John reminds the people, reminds them of here to, to immediately refute the teaching from the Gnostics. That, that, that Jesus didn't have an actual body or that his humanity was not real. Okay, John says, and, and here when he says we, um, <clears throat> uh, he says we because he's not the only one to have perceived Jesus in this way. Okay? Um, at the very least, he's referring to himself and all of the other apostles, let alone all of the other people that saw Jesus and were with Jesus and were perhaps touched by Jesus or touched Jesus. Okay? So the, that we encompasses a lot of people. Of course, by John's time, now when he's writing this, that we is a very narrow group of people still living. Um, but that's, that's why he's writing we. <clears throat> um, and so we've got to remember, too, that this is around 60 years after Jesus walked the earth. 60 years have gone by since he witnessed these things and that he's writing about now. And how much can people forget or begin to doubt with the passing of 60 years? I mean, how many people here can even remember something 60 years ago? Not me. I'm not 60 years old yet, so there's only a couple, right? But how much have you forgotten in 60 years? How much have you forgotten in a week? And so this is, it's another reason for the importance of, of reading the Scriptures and studying the Scriptures. We forget. We do tend to forget. And you might think, well, I, I would never forget the things Jesus said if I had been there. Really? Uh, I think... If you look at what we're reading in the Old Testament, people forget pretty quickly some pretty miraculous things. Um, so what are the, the four facts that he uses to prove the reality of Jesus' humanity? He says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands. <clears throat> Has anyone ever told you something sort of unbelievable? Um, when you look at them with eyes of disbelief, <laughs> or, or you say, I can't believe that. What's their response to prove it? No, no, I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. I touched it. I was there. It's a common way to convince or remind people that of the reality of something. I, I was a witness to it. Look at court trials. There's a reason why eyewitnesses are brought in to testify to what they saw. Because it adds to the credibility or the truth of, of the charge that's being brought. They bring in people to testify about the truth of what they saw. And that's what John is doing here. He is, he's testifying to the truth of his own, of what he witnessed himself. Okay? It, it, that's, what, that's kind of what he's doing. You know, they say Jesus didn't come in the flesh. I say he did. I know it because I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. I touched him with my own hands. And not just me, but all those that were there at that time. All those people witnessed this. And those Gnostics, they have nothing to offer. They weren't there. Okay, they're, they're making up their theology out of thin air, according to what they think things are and what they think things should be. And really that boils down to, I'm making a God of my own liking. A God that suits me. Right? 
There are a couple of examples for, for John's credibility in this area. The first thing he ever heard from Jesus. What do you think the first thing he ever heard from Jesus was? What was that? Come follow me, yeah. Matthew 4, 21 and 22. Uh, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So, yes, John heard Jesus. Those were the first words he heard, and he responded to them, absolutely. And, of course, then John heard every parable, every sermon, every rebuke of religious leaders, even all the words from Jesus said in private that we, we don't have in Scripture. Not everything that Jesus ever said to his disciples is written in Scripture. They had three years with Jesus. He heard a lot. He heard all the words of Jesus and all the words of Jesus as Jesus hung on the cross and, and talked about uh, being there and, and hearing everything. He, um, this is the man, John, that Jesus entrusted with caring for his mother when he died. Do you remember that? John 19, 26, and 27. From the cross, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said this. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Okay, that's John. John was writing those words, and he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the one that Jesus said, take care of my mom. He heard that. He said he saw him with his eyes. Okay, Not just saw him as, and this is where he'd kind of have to be careful. Sometimes people say, I saw him. And what they mean is in a vision or in a dream. Okay, That's not what John is talking about here. He, he adds, he, he saw him with his eyes. He, he mentions eyes on purpose. Again, proving this was an actual person, not a, a phantom or a hologram. Okay? Then he says something you might think is the same thing. He says, he looked upon him. And the word John uses there is uh, theaomai. Okay? And it has a deeper meaning to it than just to see. Okay? And that is to say, he he looked attentively. It can also be translated to learn by looking. It's more than just a passing glance. I saw him. There is a relationship there. He learned by looking. He was attentive to what he saw. So that brings up a question. What are some of the characteristics of Jesus that John would have learned by looking upon him in this way? Three years of ministry with Jesus. What are some of the characteristics of Jesus that John would have learned by looking upon him? I'll give you a couple examples, maybe get you started. He's a healer. Okay? He's a servant. What else? What's that? Miracle. He's a miracle worker, right. He's kind. Okay. Compassionate. <laughs> he breaks social rules, yes. Let's not turn that into something that it's not. But... <laughs> <laughs> yes. He was meek, very meek spirit, yes. How about he was a sacrifice? He would have learned that by looking upon Jesus. You could go on and on with a list of all the things you could learn from Jesus 
by looking upon him during his life. Okay, and that's what John's getting at here by saying that he looked upon him. Um, and finally, John indicates he touched Jesus with his own hands. And the word he uses for touching uh, is more than just a quick touch. And I feel bad about this, but the first thing that came into my mind was those old commercials with the Pillsbury Doughboy where you, you, know, they, you see this finger come in and poke the little doughboy and he giggles, right? Um, it's not that. It's not that kind of touch. Um, it really has, again, a deeper meaning. It means to, to feel after or to grope. It's as if you're touching to discover something. In light of the false teaching about Jesus that we mentioned earlier, why is that significant? That he touched him with his own hands. He's not a hologram. He was real. Flesh and blood, a real human being. Okay? Um, and of course, the disciples would have touched Jesus. Again, three years they spent with him in close fellowship. And John in particular was very close. Remember, again, he referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, that could sound kind of arrogant, but it's not. And he was really, if you remember, one of the three closest. He was close to Jesus, as were his brother James and Peter. Okay, they often got, I don't want to say special treatment, but got invited to some special things by Jesus. Um, and remember the interaction at dinnertime on the night Jesus was betrayed. You know, he just finished telling them that one of them was going to betray him, and here's what happened according to John's testimony in John 13, 23 through 25. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, as John describing himself, was reclining at table with Jesus, at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Peter didn't want to ask Jesus himself who's going to betray him. He's like, hey, John, ask him. Uh, so that disciple, again, referring to himself, that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? That's closeness. Close. He leaned against Jesus. And Jesus himself proved he was in bodily form. Again, after his resurrection. Look with me, if you would, at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And verses 36 through 39. I'll give you a second to get there. Luke 24, 36 through 39. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Okay, Jesus, in that passage, Jesus is using the same word there that John used in our First John passage to describe touching him with his own hands. For for the disciples to be able to touch Jesus and know he was real was a priority for Jesus after his resurrection. This is part of his message going forward. He rose bodily from the grave. And his message needed to be, his messengers, the apostles, needed to experience this in order to testify to these facts. So Jesus appears to them. 
And John himself described the events of Jesus proving this to Thomas, since Thomas had not been with uh, the other disciples when, when, you know, eight days earlier when Jesus had revealed himself to them. So look over at John 20, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And verses 26 through 29. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Notice that Jesus proved it to them physically, but then he says that those who believe without seeing are blessed. Now, John is in, he's testifying to those who have not seen in 1 John. He's writing this. Those people didn't see, they didn't touch. He's testifying to them. And Jesus said, those people are blessed if they believe who have not seen. And he testifies to the reality of the life of Jesus, not just being eternally existent, but manifesting in the flesh. And that's where John takes his parenthetical statement in verse 2. And they're supporting this fact. Look at verse 2 in our first John passage. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, there are several times John emphasizes uh, what he's talking about about by repeating the facts about what happened. Here he does so by repeating the fact that he saw him. Okay, The life was made manifest. Let's look at that. The life was made manifest. The word John used means to reveal or to make visible. To make visible what was hidden. In other words, John saw him who was once hidden. This is his testimony and proclamation. He's not just giving information and and leaving it at that. He's saying it is true and calling on the people to believe it as true. And of course, it's not the first word the people have heard on the subject. They have the other gospels and letters written to the church and all the other churches that have been written about the person and work of Jesus Christ, including all that John had written and the other apostles had written, not only about Jesus, but about John and what he saw. Other apostles wrote about John being there and what he saw. They testify, those other apostles, testify also to the fact that John can testify. Okay, He has credibility. The incarnation of Jesus was... um, was the first time that God had revealed himself in the flesh on earth. It is the first time that we see this in the, with the coming of Christ um, is, is God in the flesh. And in Christ, the divine, eternal life became real flesh. And John had made this clear in his gospel, John 1.14, if you remember it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, and yeah, question. Yes, 
at Jesus' uh, birth is God coming in the flesh. Yeah. There are other times when uh, Jesus appears in the Old Testament, but it's not in this, in this way. Um, Jesus was resurrected in bodily form, yes. He would still bear the scars. Yeah. Um, back to the subject of eternality. John describes the eternal life which was with the Father. Two things are important here, that, that the life is eternal and it was with the Father. Eternal. He, he does not give a start date. Okay? This is not eternal from a point in time but eternal forever and from forever. Um, Eternal past, present, and future, with no beginning and no end. That's how he's describing this. There's not a start point. He also says that he was with the Father. And this speaks of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the fellowship that absolutely existed with them before, not only before he was manifested in the flesh, but before time began, okay, before creation. Jesus expressed this in his high priestly prayer before he was crucified. If you look back again with me at the Gospel of John in chapter 17. John 17, looking at verses 1 through 5. And listen here how Jesus describes this relationship. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, before the world existed, Jesus was in the presence of the Father in glory. And that's what John means by when he says, was with the Father. His earthly ministry was the beginning of his bodily manifestation, but he had always existed with the Father before everything else existed. These two things about Jesus are also proof of, and and John is making the point that Jesus is God here. There's deity here, refuting any teaching that that said that he was just a man, uh, which uh, we also have in a lot of religious systems today, uh, including those claiming to be Christian, will deny the deity of Christ. Now verse 3 comes back to what John began with and repeats and finishes the thought. John, 1 John 1, 3, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John expresses his purpose in writing and proclaiming this to the church. And it was so that their common fellowship would be maintained. And remember, many are being deceived by the false teaching um, that has come into the church. And John is going, he's going after the false teaching here by restating the facts about Jesus. And, and when I say going after, 
the false teaching. I mean with the goal of completely discrediting it, with, with refuting it and condemning it. Something you, you never hear in Scripture is that we should tolerate and accept other belief systems. Many churches fall into the trap of believing people who claim Jesus but believe differently about his person and work as described in the Scriptures. And, and the church sometimes falls into the trap of saying, that's just fine. Okay? This whole letter refutes that mindset. There's no other way to understand Jesus than what the Bible teaches. Okay? We cannot tolerate other so-called Christian beliefs if they don't line up with Scripture about Jesus. Let's be clear about something, though. When I say we cannot tolerate these, it doesn't mean that we hate people or treat people poorly or threaten or harm or anything resembling those things. What not tolerating means in the church is that we cannot embrace these things as true and in any fashion and allow them into the church as they will pollute the church or pollute the truth. That's what it means to not tolerate them, to to fight against them, to not allow them into the church. Only the word of God is true. And, and so those things must be rebuked as false and evil and deadly, and that's what John is doing. But, but those things, those refutations, when we refute the false teachings, we rebuke the false teachings, is also followed with the gospel. The gospel that has power to save people from even the most devilish of doctrines. Okay, To turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ brings about salvation. Okay? Uh, to be, believe wrongly about who Jesus is is to not believe at all. And we know there are many religious systems today that claim Jesus in some fashion, but, but not the biblical Jesus. And they're false religions. That's why later in this book, uh, John tells them in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Back then was already in the world. So it's still here today. Okay? And to truly confess Jesus, that Jesus has come in the flesh, is not just to recite those words. Jesus came in the flesh. It is a confession that he has come in the flesh, as the Bible says he came, as the person that the Bible says he is, and that he did and is doing what the Bible says he did and is doing. It's to believe everything about Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. And to leave out something about who Jesus is or what he's done is to reject the gospel and therefore a person remains in their sins and, and has none of the fellowship that John says here is achieved by believing in the truth. And that's what he's after here. To, to get these people to stop believing in those other things or drifting that way, remind them of the truth. Here is where fellowship is, around the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, not in what this group says uh, he did or didn't do or what he's like. So the person sitting under the reading of John's letter who has maybe started to lean toward or following the Gnostics, um, this is meant to be a call to repentance for them. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as proclaimed in the scriptures by the apostles 
and by Jesus himself. It's a call to fellowship among the we that he talked about. Uh, the, the we he's writing about as opposed to being counted among the they that we will also hear so much about going on in this letter. This letter is about us and them. We and they, believer, unbeliever, true and false. There's not a middle ground. You're not going to find a middle ground here. To join in the fellowship with John is to join in what is true fellowship that he describes as being with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, at the end of verse 3. And so he ends it with verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Not only is John saddened by the drift of people into heresy, but he's also writing this letter to aggressively pursue them back uh, so they'll return or perhaps join the fellowship for the first time. This would zap the joy of any pastor to watch the Christians that they know drift into false belief about things, robbing them of their joy in Christ. Also to watch unbelievers continuing to be deluded into thinking that they're true believers. So John is after them to bring them back to having their rest in Christ. He wants their joy uh, together as those who are in Christ to be complete. Meaning he wants that joy to grow and be perfected in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come out of that false teaching and that false belief. Come to the actual, real Jesus Christ who came in bodily form that I saw, I touched, I heard, and I'm proclaiming it to you. That's what he's talking about. Come out of that, those other things. You have their joy be complete. And by implication, the other path does not bring about joy. It brings about death. So if they didn't already know it, John is setting himself up as a genuinely credible witness to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's setting the record straight about who Jesus Christ is. And then next time we'll look at, as we move forward in verse 5, um, what the message is. What the message is that, that is going forward. So, any questions before we, before we pray? Any questions about this? If you want to save it for the Q&A, you can. Okay. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again for tonight. Thank you for this word uh, that was written, Lord, by John, as he testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ, to what he witnessed, what he saw and heard and touched with his own hands, what he looked upon. And Lord, as valuable as it was for the people he wrote to back then, it is absolutely just as valuable for us today to hear the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Lord, that we would remain in the fellowship of believers, that we would not be pulled away by error, but to remain steadfast in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is where true joy and fellowship is found. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.